Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Indie Comics Spotlight, the show where we spend time looking at an ongoing series of graphic novels from the company of the I hope here is that we can do a deep dive on an indie comic you may have missed or give you a chance to talk about one of your favorites with us on social media afterwards. I'm your host, Tony Farina of DC Comics News and Fantastic Universes. I've been reading comics since I was 12, and while I love a good superhero battle, I gravitate towards indie comics and standalone graphic novels because they give artists a chance to connect with readers in different ways and tell stories they may not have been able to tell with traditional comics or traditional novels. I hope that you enjoyed the show. All right. Well, this week on Indie Comics Spotlight, my guest's newest, brilliant, soon-to-be, in my opinion, award-winning sequel to her um, book sheets, her new book, Delicates, will be on shelves while you're listening to this. This is coming out that week. Um, I w- I'm so excited to have on my show, Brenna Thumler. Brenna, thank you for being here. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. I'm excited. I assume, this is just me guessing, and I have one vote in the Eisner Awards, but I would be shocked if this isn't nominated for lots of things. I mean, I can only hope so. Yeah, I don't have a vote to nominate. I only have a vote once. I don't know how the nominations are done. If it's like some weird secret signals, I don't know how that works. But uh, once they're out there, I just, I would be shocked if Delicates isn't nominated. So it's a delightful book and I, I'm excited you're here to talk to me about it. It's got my vote. I don't have a vote, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully the people who listen, because some of the other people who listen have votes. So we'll be like, this will be, we'll be like swaying them, you know? Um, so cool. Well, this is exciting. So before we get into what sheets and delicates are as books, um, anytime somebody's new to the show, I always kind of go through that person's comic book origin story. And because you are a person who does comics, but also must be a fan. Nobody's like, you know what I'm going to get into? Graphic novels. And I have no idea what that is. So at some point you must have been a fan. So what is Little Brenna's, you know, what were you like? How did you get into comics? And then how did that then translate into this is my job? Right. Well, this is going to be a very unconventional uh, getting into comics story because I pretty much actively avoided getting into comics (laughs) my, my, my whole life. I mean, as a kid, I got really excited to read the the newspaper funnies like the peanuts and Calvin and Hobbes and things like that. But they were just like my parents bringing home the paper and everything else was boring. So I just looked at the comics Um, (laughs) (laughs) and and then I, you know, I went to art school and um, of course, you have to start thinking about what you're going to do with the rest of your life once you graduate and my options were pretty open. I I was leaning kind of towards maybe editorial illustration or just illustrating maybe book covers, mostly freelance work, I guess. And if anyone would have said, like, what about graphic novels? I would have been like, no way, (laughs) no way will I ever do that. I'm not really sure exactly why. I just thought it was incredibly daunting. I didn't think I would necessarily be good at it or interested in it. Um, and, and a lot of professors or art directors would be like, oh, you know, you have these really awesome storytelling abilities and maybe it's something you should think about. And I was like, you're nuts. <laughs> Get away from me. <laughs> um, and so I started working at a publishing company after I graduated, uh, graduated college and they got to know my work a little bit there. And then an editor approached me with the opportunity to illustrate the Anne of Green Gables graphic novel adaptation. 
And Anne of Green Gables was one of my favorite classic stories from childhood. And it was just the most incredible opportunity. And I could, couldn't possibly say no. Um, and it was funny because maybe about a month or two before that, before I was approached for Anne of Green Gables, I read my very first ever graphic novel that I that I picked up at a thrift store in Kansas City. And I was just wandering down the aisles of books, the aisles and aisles and aisles, and this one spine stood out to me. And it was this one summer. Oh my God, I love that book. Yes, oh. it is still my favorite graphic novel of all time. Um, I would love to have her on. That's a dream oh, too. So if you know her, if you can make that happen. Oh, I, I only, I only <laughs> dared to dream to know her. <laughs> She's responded to me twice on Twitter. That's, that's oh, wow. very that exciting. You, you are practically a king. <laughs> oh my God, she's the best. Isn't she just fantastic? I love that book so much. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I pulled it off the shelf and the cover was even more glorious and I opened it up and I was like, oh, it's a graphic novel. And I didn't think I would like it, but the illustrations were beautiful. It was only $3. So, so what a deal. They were yeah. like giving that away for that. Price. I was like, $3 for pretty illustrations? I'll, I'll, I, can, I can dish that out. And so I took it home and I decided, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. I'll read it. Read it all in one sitting fell in love with it. I was obsessed. I was a graphic novel convert after that. And I think it was just that last shove of fate where it's like, look, you, you're going to love graphic novels. You're going to love working on them. In a month, you'll be asked to do one. Say yes. Nice. <laughs> and, and so I did. I, I took on the project. I was very, very scared, but I took it on. And then I just ended up feeling like I had finally found what I was supposed to be doing. It was, it was, exactly the right project for me. Awesome. That's amazing. And Anne of Green Gables. So what a great story to tell too. And so um, with that, was that a situation where um, you as the artist were like given free reign a little bit to decide um, what they, what the character, you know, how they were going to look. I mean, this is, you know, with Anne of Green Gables, there are illustrations, but of course, depending on which edition you get, she looks a little bit different and the people in the story look a little bit different. So how did you then design those characters and where is it because now you were inspired by some of these other graphic novels you had seen um, to get in a sense of how to take a literary character and bring her to life like that. Yeah, I mean, I grew up loving um, the, the Megan Fellows version, okay. uh, the, the, the film version. And um, I'm sure that sort of influenced me in the back of my mind. Um, and of course, I mean, there are so many different Anne of Green Gables covers. I mean, you can't help but to be slightly influenced just when you have all these images from your past. Uh, but I definitely was given a lot of uh, leeway to make my own decisions about how I design the characters and the book as a whole. Um, I did, I remember people, one of the one of the complaints I got was that I made Diana taller than Anne. And they were like, have you even read the book? She's shorter than Anne. I was, but but I I just uh, they were like the things so that mad. people get mad about. I know they were crazy. so mad that Dan, Diana was taller than Anne. I was like, I I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Um, but I just saw Anne as this really small person with the world like so heavy on her, and I yeah. wanted her to be the smallest character in the book. And so, as an artist, especially when you're working with the classic that has been adapted so many different ways at so many different times. Um, I think you you do have the freedom to express it the way that you see it because they know that there's always going to be that original, which is the true form. 
and then artists are kind of given their own their own decision making yeah it's funny that you say that because um when uh, and I, this is a completely i mean you cannot go more 180 from anne of green gables but when john leguizamo played clown in the original spawn movie john leguizamo is like five foot one and he the clown in the comic is like 411 so he squatted down the whole performance in that movie because he was worried that the it, that comic fans and people you know fans in general were going to be mad at him for playing the clown two inches too or three inches too short, tall so that is hysterical but that is the thing that people hung up on was was that and I get it I get what you're saying you know they're they're like saying well but this is but I like that that's your your interpretation of her is that it's not about her stature it's about who she is and the way that yeah. she comes through her thing so I think that's a great idea to to visual to you know give readers a visual of that right he probably has like knee injuries now he probably he probably does <laughs> Yeah, that was years ago that, you know, when he did that. But that was even like, that was like at the beat when the internet was still a baby when that Spawn movie came out and he was worried about it then. So imagine what it would be like now, you know? And uh, it's just funny, the things that people yeah. get mad about. So how did you, did you, and it, was that your response to those people or did you just let them shout into a vacuum and you didn't? Oh, I, I usually just let people scream at me. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it is weird and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get super, although, you know, Delicates has a lot of heavy, there's a lot of heavy themes in your books, but um, it is since, you know, you are a woman in, in comic books, what was, was there advice, any other, because as you know, way more than I do, that that is a problem for some women, that there's a lot of like idiot, toxic fandom jerk faces out there. So how did you, like, what was your uh, preparation into that? Did anybody pull you aside or like, listen, Brenna, you know, was there any mentors, any um, in the in the industry to kind of help you prepare for that? Because it sounds like if you're just like, yeah, just let them shout. I don't care. That's the best. It seems like that must be the best way to handle it. Um, I get mad. Um, one of my favorite writers and uh, colorists, Jordi Belair, she's not on Twitter anymore. And that's disappointing. And I'm sure it's because some, you know, there's only so much you can take. And so I don't understand people. But what was your um, how did you handle that? Was there any advice given? Honestly, no. I mean, I think that I, I am not famous enough yet to have like enough, enough of a, an angry mob attacking me. <laughs> Which is um, good for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, and I also think that I am in a lucky uh, time in the world when female comic artists are so prominent now. I mean, you know, many, many years ago, it would have probably been a much bigger issue and much more attacked um, for female artists to take risks in the comic industry. But you have so many incredible female creators nowadays that I think it's it's becoming more normal, thankfully. And I, maybe, maybe the worst is yet to come. Maybe. Oh, I hope not. I don't, I'm not <laughs> wishing that on you, obviously. I want, you know, I've got, I would love to see you you know, you know, obviously you did the end of Green Gables and I just love your art style. I would love to see you do um, foray over into more uh, like, you know, other people's IPs to see. Um, I like your style. I don't know if you've seen like DC kids stuff. They have the superhero girls. Have you ever seen those comics? I, I'm, maybe I just, I've seen like the images, but I'm not yeah. really familiar with them. Well, so it's like this idea where they've taken the, um, you know, it's, so it's for, it's for more middle readers and younger readers, kind of like, you know, your stuff is obviously geared at YA and, your, and middle readers. And so there's these superhero girls. And so it's like you, all the female superheroes and they kind of go to school together. And it's, it's, I would love, just love to see your take 
I would like to see you with your bright coloring and your art style take on some of those superheroes. I just think that would be a lot of fun. I would like to see it. I don't know if that's something you'd ever be interested in doing, but it would be, I would, I would sign up for that and I would check that out. I think. Oh yeah, that would, that would be awesome. I, yeah. I mean, I, I always love taking on, I, I feel like when you are a creator of your own work, you sort of get trapped in a bubble. Like I, I do the projects that I would typically do. Um, and it's when people ask me to try something new that I really get to push my boundaries and be like, all right, let's let's like let's experiment a little bit and see how far I push myself. Yeah, yeah, and then that's where you'd be working with because you're writing your own stuff too. Mm -hmm. um, so if if you were to take on an existing IP or something, would that be important to you too, or would you want to work with a writer um, to be like, okay, you're going to write the script and I'm going to come in, or, or for you because now you're kind of used to doing it all your own, would you prefer that? To just be like, nope, I want to take on, you know, Black Canary and I'm going to go do a Black Canary comic. Um, I mean, I would probably, I don't know. I, you know, when I worked on Evergreen Gables, um, I did work with another writer, but I was fortunate that she was in the same building as me. We actually both worked at the publishing company. Oh, nice. And so there was, there was so much collaboration there. Um and I know that most of the time when you're working with a writer in, in a comic, like they live across the country, you know, you don't really get to communicate with them. Yeah. And a lot of the communication goes through the editor. Um, but I mean, I, I enjoyed that as well. Like I, I thought it was really cool to work with somebody. I'm so sorry. You probably hear my cat meowing in the background it's totally right fine. now. <laughs> it, it's, it adds to the charm. It's all good. <laughs> He's really excited yeah. to have someone else's face in the apartment. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, I, I think that a lot of really exciting things can come from a collaboration between two people. I mean, they have their own ideas from a writing standpoint and I, I love both versions. I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable now at this point working on my own, but I, I think collaborations can be really awesome things. Yeah, yeah, no, I just, I was curious. And, and you know, obviously we're here to talk about your stuff that you've done yourself, but I'm just always wondering, like as somebody who's, been a comic fan my whole life and who, you know, who has not really, you know, taken any of the risks that you obviously had to take to get yourself into the industry. You know, I like became a teacher and I like that job and I like what I do and I write stuff, but I don't have any artistic, you know, I can't draw. So it would always have to be like, oh, I'm going to need an artist. And I know that's a whole, um, I've talked to some other writers and artists and, you know, it's just always interesting to hear, um, what that process is. And I think other people who listen to this will be like, yeah, you know, they can, they can relate to that in, in um, mm -hmm. some way. But you, you know, you mentioned that you do most of this on your own, but you obviously still, um, because this, you're at Lion Forge, which is now Oni um, together, right? Lion Forge yes. is the middle readers line. So mm -hmm. um, did you pitch, did you pitch them sheets and delicates or, or was this something that, um, because they saw Anne of Garen Gables and they came to you and you're like, what do you got? How'd that work out? Yeah, that's also a interesting story because um, I was working with uh, Andrea Colvin uh, at Andrews McMill Universal, which is where I was signed up to do Anna Green Gables. And she was the editor I started working with. And then she actually ended up leaving to go work for Lion Forge. Oh, nice. Okay. And um, I had just, you know, I, I had stayed in contact with her. I was actually planning on submitting a query letter uh, to an agent to help me submit sheets. And I just sent her my query letter to be like, Hey, Andrew, would you mind taking a look at this, uh, to see if it sounds okay to send to an agent because she was aware of what they were looking for. Um, and she was like, would you mind just sending me the manuscript? I was like, 
no, I wouldn't mind doing that. That would be wonderful. Um, and I didn't know it was going to come with that. I just figured, you know, she might just want to look at it. Uh, yeah. But she ended up taking it to acquisitions at Lineforge and they they acquired it. And so um, I was just signed up for Sheets at that point. But then once I finished Sheets, they were like, you know, we, we'd love to sign you up for another. So that's how, and then, then of course she ended up leaving Lineforge. So it's like, I've always had a different editor. Yeah, every time <laughs> she, it's somebody different. Yeah. He just keeps leaving. Yeah. Well, whatever she goes next, then you could be like, hey, yeah. what's going on, Andrew? What, you want to hook me up? Where is she now? She's at uh, Little Brown. Oh, okay. Y- young Leaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I just had, um, I sent you the link. I had uh, Cecil on, Cecil Castellucci, and they, they uh, Little Brown picked up her and Jim Rugg did um, Plain Jeans, and that was a DC Minx line, you know, like their their teen line that was kind of an indie version of that DC owned. And then that series didn't get to finish, and Little Brown... Uh, young readers picked it up and let them finish their story. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's called Plain Jane's. It's about art. It's about uh, teenage uh, activist artists. It's a, I love it. It's, they're all named Jane, which is why. They're, they're oh, just, cool. It's awesome. delightful. It's a delightful book. Jim Rugg is a great artist. And I, Cecil is like a, I got to talk to Cecil Castellucci. So that was amazing. She's awesome. <laughs> I'm a big fan. So um, very cool. Well, that's awesome. So let's talk about this. So you, you just, so that answers the question I had. Your plan was, was your plan always to just do sheets? And then it was when the editors were like, do you have more in you? Or, or did you always see sheets, Marjorie's life as a universe? I, I had originally planned sheets as just a single book, but that's mostly because the story actually uh, grew from a project I worked on in college. Um, I took a children's book writing course in my senior year in college and uh, we were asked to sort of develop characters and basically the structure of a story like a, for a middle grade novel and then write the first couple chapters of that novel just for our final assignment. And then that got tucked away into a folder and I figured I would never touch it again. And then I was when I was wrapping up Anne Green Gables, I thought, you know, I, I don't want to quit doing graphic novels. I mean, I, I would love to try writing my own. So that's when I brought Sheets back out because I'd already had the sort of bone structure of the story. Um, but that at that point I had just planned that single story. Uh, but then when I, when I ended sheets, it didn't feel over to me. It just felt like, like the friendship between Wendell and Marjorie had so much more room to grow, um, that there were a lot of important topics that could be approached due to the, the ghost aspect of the story. And, I, I just didn't want to say goodbye to them yet. So I wanted to, I wanted to keep writing more. Well, I, I am appreciative that you didn't. And I will say, and not that, I, I mean, I really like Sheets, but I love Delicates. I think Delicates is like a mic drop. And I, but if you want to keep going, please, I would like to spend more time with these people. But <laughs> I don't know, Delicates, it, it was, they're older, Marjorie's older, Wendell, obviously, mm-hmm. unfortunately for him, doesn't get older. Um, but it, you can tell. It just, it's so good. I love it. I love Delic. It's really, really good. And I'm, I got it from NetGalley. Um, uh-huh. And, and uh, I just, I just love it. So I'm just excited that you're here. I'm going to get a little uh, geeky for a second, just a little geek out because I'm just excited to start talking about <laughs> it. Sorry. Um, I really liked it so much, but let's every let's set the table for everybody. I don't want to get super spoilery because obviously we want people to go and, and read everything. Uh-huh. But the premise of what was your elevator pick? Let's give it to my readers uh, or to my listeners of sheets and then of delicates, just in case people are like, they haven't read it yet, which you should everybody, if you haven't read this, why do you hate yourself? Um, you should be reading this, but what is sheets? And then explain to everybody what delicates is. And then we'll, I've got questions and we'll just chat. I'm so excited. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, sure. Okay. So, so she tells a story about Marjorie Glatt, who is a, a, a seventh grader who has recently lost her mom. And she was working in her family's laundromat, glass laundry, um, because her dad is dealing with depression and can't really handle things. And so she's taking on that. She's taking on bullies at school. She's taking on angry customers. She just has a lot of overwhelming problems forced on her. And then Wendell enters and he is a sheet ghost from the land of ghosts. And because they that's where actually... they live, which is amazing, <laughs> which is such a cool, interesting way that you've done things. It's, <laughs> it's so, because it's such a heavy topic, you know, it's like when you think about Casper is a dead little boy. Why is that adorable? Yeah. And Wendell is also a dead little boy. And yet, so you manage by him literally wearing the sheet over his head, like everybody imagined, you know, like Charlie Brown in his costume, she, which right. you do nice homage in this later. You yeah. do that, which I love. Um, so anyway, so that's, that's what it is. So it's literally that. So I just think that was a really brave thing that you did was to be <laughs> serious. And then you lighten it up just enough um, so that it, it, does, it doesn't weigh on us. It, mm-hmm. but it's still set. So anyway, so that's just, sorry. I'm just, I love that oh. you did it. So I appreciate it. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's, that's the thing. You really have to find that balance. Like you can't, I mean, when you're working with kids, especially you can't just have this insanely depressing book. Like you right. can't traumatize them. You have to give them some sort of humor or, or brightness, something to cling on to, to know that despite all the problems, there are still, there are still good things to look forward to. Um, so yeah, so so Wendell starts causing all these problems in the laundromat because most of the time he just looks like a plain sheet unless he's during awake. the day, right? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. What a cool and, rule! I like that rule. <laughs> and um, and so Marjorie's really unsure what's going on in the laundromat, and and because of these issues that Wendell's causing, it's it's causing her to have to deal with so much in her own life, um, and it's really just a story about like dealing with grief and dealing with these overwhelming problems in your life and how to persevere uh, despite all of that. And yeah, so by the end of Sheets, you know, Marjorie has, um, I mean, I kind of have to give this spoiler just to segue into Delicates, uh, but she does end up becoming friends with Wendell. Um, And so, you know, then comes Delicates and it turns out that, you know, just having a, a sheet as a friend, isn't really the greatest thing for a middle schooler. I mean, you, you kind of need other friends other than she's. And um, the day friends. You need daytime friends. Yeah, you need day friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so she has found herself in the popular crowd. Um, it, and then, of course, you know, these, these popular kids are also the bullies. So Marjorie's really struggling with understanding how that's conflict within her like she was once bullied but now she has this sense of belonging with this new crowd but they're also the bullies and so she's kind of sort of battling like do I want to lose the sense of belonging or do I want to lose this idea that I was once the people once the victim and this group of bullies is especially targeting a new character who I love uh, named Eliza and um she is, she's so cool. She's a ghost photographer. She's obsessed with ghosts, but she's just being very traumatized by, by this group of bullies. And um, yeah, so, so Delicates is mostly about understanding how our words and actions are affecting other people. It kind of, it kind of looks at 
both sides of the equation. Like it looks at the viewpoint of someone who is part of the bully group and then someone who is being bullied. And my hope is that it's just an eye-opening book to show us how we are sort of um, invisibly affecting others and how we can be better. That's, uh, and it does that, in my opinion. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I think what, what I was shocked by and, and was the turn, because at the end of Sheets, we meet Colton, who, uh, Colton, as Wendell calls him, who is, um, I wasn't expecting him to be a turd. <laughs> Did you know all along? I, so, I, I love unexpected twists in books. Mm-hmm. And at the end, I, you know, at the end of Sheets, I was like, oh, you know, Marjorie finally has found a person. And then I was like, is, is that the person she needs right now? I, I said, like, no, she, she, a lot of times people think highly of others who turn out to be jerks and it's just reality. And I didn't want this person who she thought was so great to be great. I just wanted her to like, come to reality and realize that people are not who we think they are all the time. And, um, and of course, Colton had sort of been like hanging with the popular crowd. And so of course he's going to be influenced by them as well. Like we might think somebody is better than we, we, we think they are. And I don't know, I just felt that Marjorie had to learn that she's going to be let down sometimes. Yeah, and she was, I, I mean, and it wasn't, as a reader, I was, I was okay, you know, it's like, you read it and you're like, oh, that makes perfect sense. But it was also just like a shock. And I just wondered if you knew from the jump, like, so it doesn't sound like, so you, as you were thinking of the sequel, you were like, well, what is the thing that happens? And then, so if it had ended with Sheets, we would all think, not that it's going to be, they're going to like, you know, grow old and have babies, but that she's got a real friend. Like he seemed like a decent guy. Um, and then it turns out, like you said, he's under pressure too. And I think it's interesting as a guy who all of my friends were girls when I was in, uh, in middle school and, and in high school, I have very few friends who were guys because they were just like dumb asses. So I could relate to Colton, you know, like being around like all of his friends are girls, but of course they're like, he's, it's an interesting idea to have one of the boys be swarmed or be, be part of the swarm to the queen bees, um, uh-huh. which was, I've, I've never seen anybody put a boy in the kind of, the posse of the queen bees as like one of the worker bees. So that was an interesting way to approach that. So um, what, why was that? Why did you, why did you think it was important that he not just like be a jerk because he's with other guys and go that stereotypical way of what happens to 14 year old boys. You made this option to keep him friends with the girls, but he's not, he's a clone. He's not the queen bee. You know, he's not the Mm -hmm. leader of that group. That, that was, uh, I've never seen that before. So how did you come up with that? Yeah, I just, I mean, I, I always saw Tessie as the leader of this group. And and from the beginning, Colton was sort of part of that. Um, and I don't know, I like to defy stereotypes. I, I like to see Tessie as this really strong person, even though she is she's suffering a lot at home, even though she does have a lot of problems of her own. Um, she is still a very strong-minded person. And I think that she has the power over Colton to influence him. Like he, he is, he can be kind of a jerk. He can stand his ground, but he's also easily influenced by her. He just, I think a lot of people just succumb to the, the queen bee uh, persona 
despite gender. It's it just, if you're a powerful person, you might have power over someone of the opposite gender just because that's who you are as a person. Yeah, that, and, and it works out really well. Also, it's not a big town that helps. Mm-hmm. You yeah. put it in a place where it's not, and this isn't like Chicago or New York or you're in, you're in Pennsylvania. You didn't set it in Pittsburgh or Philly. You set it in like little out of the way kind of community. That matters too, because you're mm-hmm. kind of stuck with who who's around. Oh yeah. 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 Um, and I think, I think it was really great to the turn in the first book. The villain is this like, Oh my God, he's a riot that what a great villain you created for the first book. (laughs) So for the second book, I also, like you said, you don't like to, you want to kind of upend what expectations and stereotypes. So in the second book, it's a much more grounded in a book where there's ghosts, everybody who do Marjorie's laundry for her. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a special thing that keeps their sheets clean that she gets to use, which is genius. I love that she, she is kind of, um, you know, there's a, there's a subtle dig there at the working, the people who do the work, like Marjorie is this person who, who does the work, who does people's laundry. So that's mm-hmm. kind of like, she's a domestic and it was, you know, but it's a small family business, but she's treated very Cinderella-y in the first book. And then in this book, her her ghost friends are giving her this amazing cleaning. So now they're the most popular laundry and everybody comes there and everything's awesome. But she's also now treating these other people who are, she's still doing the work, but they're giving her this, this you know, tool as it were. She's kind of created her own underclass. And so it's just yeah. an interesting thing to see how quickly, like, so you've got this big larger than life villain in the first one. And then in the second one, like you said, Marjorie is now part of the group. She's sort of her the villain in her own story. Mm-hmm. And the realization about halfway through this book, when I was like, oh man, I hope she, like I was worried for her. I'm like, I hope she realizes that she and the villain from the first book, she's on the path to be this guy where she's manipulating mm-hmm. the people around her. Um, was that comparison, am I reading too far? This is those times where I told you before we started where I make a guess and then you tell me if I'm right or wrong. <laughs> is that way too far? You're like, I didn't remake... Jordan Peele's Us as a middle reader book. <laughs> I I mean I didn't necessarily see Marjorie's becoming the new Sabertuck. Like I didn't I didn't picture her becoming like a terrible evil villain. Um, but I did see her as gaining this new power and not really knowing what to do with it because she doesn't have motherly guidance. She, she's kind of on her own. And so she has this newfound popularity and newfound like both in her her friendship and her her career as it were um because yeah, so many 14 year old girls should be small business owners yes I mean, that's a lot of pressure you put on her so yeah, she, she's dealing with an awful lot yeah, yeah. Um, and so she just I think she just doesn't know what to do with it she's like I she's worried about her image because I mean what middle schooler isn't like however much they want to say oh I don't care what other people think like they everyone cares what people think and that's it's okay I mean of course you're going to care what others think um, you're worried about being judged and she's, she's definitely worried about being judged. And so she's just trying to maintain this status so she doesn't get hurt. And so I think it's more fear. I think so much of it is fear-based. Yeah. I think that's, that's definitely true. And she's such a mess and her dad and her brother, I, I, I was, and obviously we, we need to talk about Eliza because I have so much to say about her and to talk to you about, obviously. Um, but I want to finish up with Marjorie as, and then we'll move into Eliza's story. I mean, obviously they're linked. It's not yeah. just written two stories, but um, her little brother, it's so heartbreaking 
Um, in the first book, you feel really sad for the whole family and the dad, like you said, is going through a terrible depression. And it's not like he can fix that. He lost his wife and his partner and he's raising kids and he's not sure what he's doing and he's a mess. But what happened, the little brother, the, the, the hole that he digs himself in and the, the fact that Marjorie, like it's all on Marjorie to do the work to, because again, the dad is still, he pretends he's better, but he's absolutely not better. That was really hard to read, not in a bad, you know, it was like, like that was really a gut punch to me. Mm -hmm. um, what was your thought process there? Because he's, he seems like he's a totally different character from, and it's just a year later from year one to year two. And is it, is that simply because it's not, you kind of focus this one around Halloween and that's something he did with his mom. And so it was that trigger or was your plan all along with him for us to see how grief works depending on how old you are. And, you know, I just was curious about the brother's kind of downwards part. He pretends like he's fine because he's just, all he does is play video games, but there's uh -huh. clearly something very wrong with him. He's really hurting. Yeah, I think, I mean, he's growing older and he's starting to realize what it's like for other kids to have moms and him not have a mom. Um, and I think I just wanted to showcase Wendell. I mean, not, sorry, not Wendell, Owen. Uh, showcase Wendell a little more. I said Wendell again. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to kind of focus on, on his struggles because in the first book, you don't really see much of him. Right, yeah. And, um, and I'm sure that in sheets, uh, you don't see the struggles he's going through. He probably is struggling a lot behind the scenes. Um, but yes, I mean, the Halloween thing definitely triggered him because of course, when something really wonderful occurs, like if, if Halloween is something really important to you, it's going to be a trigger. It's, it's going to be different than just an average day. Um, so yeah, and, and plus I, I wanted to emphasize a little more the relationship between Marjorie and Owen. And I think that the, the struggle that Owen is having is like, is sort of feeding off of like Marjorie's changes a little bit because he's, he's maybe feeling a little more abandoned now that Marjorie is, is not home as much. Like she has friends now. Right. Cause she was just a, right. A good weekend, a good day for her is to come home from school, read, do the laundry and hang out. Yeah. So she's just, well, it's not like you see her and Owen in the first book doing a lot together. It's just like that, that comfort that he has, that she's always there. Mm -hmm. exactly. She feeds him like, cause the dad, you don't see the dad much in the first book because he's so hiding away. So Owen, he's just right. He's come to rely on Marjorie as his um, surrogate mother, as it were. And, She's not mm. that now. And nor should she have to be, obviously. Right. But she wants to be. She's such a good character. She's such a good kid. I like her a lot. I think, oh, yeah. I think you've done an excellent job. And she's, you know, you we see her warts and all. And I think that relationship with Owen where she has to, right, she doesn't want to have to take care of her. What's he, six? He, uh, so he's going to, he's um, uh, first grade now. So seven, he made, he's seven. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So it's like, she's, you know, she's 14, 13, 14. She's like her, her night isn't like, oh, cool. I get to hang out with my seven-year-old brother. Cool. <laughs> yeah. um, but she, you know, and you see that, you see that inner turmoil in her and you do a lot of um, panels where there's no words, where you just let your beautiful art and your coloring do the work. And I appreciate that because we, we then can just see what she's doing and see what she's thinking. And you give us a lot to, to sit with without you becoming exposition woman. And I appreciate you for not being, because there's nothing wrong with, we need some explanation, but 
there's nothing worse than reading a comic book where you've got 10 panels of, and now I'm feeling like this. We get it. You can show that with your art. So I appreciate that you do. I, I have to say something about that really quickly because yeah. um, I, I get so f- frustrated when people say, um, like, oh, yeah, graphic novels are a great book for someone learning to read or a great book for someone who uh, struggles or has like learning disabilities. And like, I mean, I'm so happy to hear that. I'm so glad to hear that it encourages people to read who maybe wouldn't read to begin with. Um, it's wonderful, but it's not just for them. Like graphic novels are, are incredible books on their own as they're, they are real books. And I think that people see them as lesser because they they don't have as many words or um they're not as profound in their writing and and I want to say like think of how we communicate in the world so much of how we communicate is body language or facial expression and being able to read somebody read their their emotions without any words is incredibly important and graphic novels can help people do that they can help us develop empathy in in situations where we we don't have verbal confirmation and so I I just want to tell people to go read graphic novels because you you might learn something than other like other than just interpreting words yeah no I totally agree well and as you mentioned at the beginning you mentioned um Mariko's uh book um that was your first that was your first door um and that book, there's a lot of lot of standing around looking at each other in that yes. book, right? And like when they're at the video store and everything, or mm-hmm. when wherever that video rental place, like at the convenience store, yeah. it's just a lot of like looks, and that you understand so many things that are happening in that, and so exactly. you do very well. And I, 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 well, I appreciate it, and I agree. I'm glad you said that, and I, I, um, I agree wholeheartedly. I think it's true as somebody who's who is a big reader. These are, this is one of my many Jane Austen collections around the house sitting here on these wall behind me. I'm a big reader. I love reading. I read all the time, but I've also been reading comics since I was a kid and I always have, and I always will. And I think, I think it is a different, it takes a different um, set of, of, of leaps mentally sometimes to follow the panels and to know Mm -hmm. what's happening. And like you said, I think, um, I think graphic novels definitely up the empathy game by a thousand over regular novels yeah for sure (laughs) yeah and well good I'm glad you said that thank you everybody listen listen (laughs) listen to Brenna (laughs) listen to Brenna she knows she's got she is an expert and she's and it's totally true though um and that's some of my favorite moments and and it's obviously when you're writing it yourself it's a lot easier I always am I'm fascinated by like I'm again the other extreme I'm reading um James Tynan's Something is Killing the Children which is obviously completely different from this. You know what that's about by the title. But he allows Werther Deladera, his artist, like panels. Like there's in this most recent issue, there's like tons of splash pages with no words. So it's like, you know, it's a 24 page book and eight of eight, well, eight to 10 of the pages have no words. So the writer's just like, here you go. Here's the script you go do because he knows that sometimes. So for you as the writer, it's a lot easier to do. But would you, would you classify yourself as an artist first? And that's why it's easier to give yourself those breaks. Or were there times when you wrote, you drew those panels and you're like, then you see it and you're like, yeah, I don't need the words. I've done the work. Like how, how does that work in your brain? Yeah. I, so funnily enough, um, I was surprised to hear from other graphic novelists who do any form of art before the writing. I am strictly all words first. I developed a full manuscript 
edit it completely, plan each uh, page and spread from the script. And then I go do the art. Like I, I cannot, I, I need that backbone. I need the structure of a story before I can start doing the art. And so of course it's in my head, the visuals are there as I'm writing the script. Um, so like in the script, it'll be similar to a, a screenplay where it'll say like, you know, Marjorie's walking on the street. She sees somebody, um, a look of anger washes over her face. Like I, I write the, the, pa- the panels that have no words. Um, so I'm, I'm planning for them. Nice. That's yeah. awesome. Good to know. Okay. That's cool. Since we went down that road, I, I just thought I'd ask. So that's cool. That's amazing. That's so cool. I, in the, um, when you do a special edition where you put the two together, would you maybe you could throw some of that stuff in the back for people to see like a script, you know, like I, I read um, Colin Bunn's Harrow County and, um, and, you know, so in the back of the special library editions, he's got like sample scripts. It was just oh, cool yeah. to see like as nerds, comic nerds love that stuff. So I'm just saying, if you need some space, when you put the two together, when you do the collected sheets, I'm just saying, we would all like to see that. We like okay. to get behind the curtain. I'm making would, a mental note. <laughs> yeah, I, I seriously, it would be cool to see because because it is so different. Everybody is so different. Like when you look at different comic writers um, scripts, it's like, you know, Alan Moore would famously do a full page, full no space page for like one panel of writing. And then he'd hand that over to his artist and be like, here you go. You know, and other people like would 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 plan for those vacancies and allow their artists to do. But you're being doing that you're doing both it's interesting that you like okay I know I need these panels with no words so just I just think as an as somebody who loves the the art form and um and there's lots of us out there obviously as you know um I think we would love to see it so if if you're interested I'm not making you you know show everybody your own behind the curtain but I would like to see it (laughs) I'll I'll do it just for you (laughs) thank you you'll add it to the special edition just for me yeah (laughs) <laughs> and, and, you know, we'll talk at the end if we're going to revisit these folks again. I would love to, but we can't get away um, without talking about Eliza and Miss and her dad, Mr. Duncan, um, who made a quick appearance in the first book, but who is obviously a bigger, he's hysterical. Do you know somebody like him? I don't. I just, I needed, awesome. I needed the comic relief. And I mean, honestly, in book one, he's probably my favorite character. He's so funny. I, I love great. Mr. Duncan. He just... I Marjorie needed somebody in her life and I didn't want her to be someone she was necessarily too close with. Um, she needed somebody to just show her that there are people looking out for you. And I think it's actually more powerful when you realize there are people who don't need to be looking out for you who are like, if it's, if it's just a parent or a relative who might, might feel um, it's their obligation to look out for you. You might not feel as taken care of, but when there's someone who's just like this, this teacher at school, who you barely ever see who takes you under their wing and it's like, look, I, w- I want to talk to you. I want to be there for you. Like that is so important. And I think that it's important for us as people to realize, like reach out to people who, you know, who are not in your immediate circle, like be willing to, lend a hand if you see it's necessary and Mr. Duncan is that for her like Mr. Duncan is the person who is just willing to be a guardian of sorts and I I, I he's great he I, I just I'm, he, he needed to come back for book two he's great well and I love that I, what I think is so cool is that because you set him up as this amazing scene and again just like with Colton just like with Owen you meet them and then you think you know them and then you find out, oh, like, oh, everybody's got a life. Like, oh, your teacher has a marriage and it's not always perfect. And he's got kids 
And that's not always great because he's like the best teacher. He's everybody's favorite teacher. But then uh-huh. he's also like his daughter gets held back and has to repeat eighth grade. And, and so he has to, and, oh man, there's that moment where he totally, where he when, when he, when they're doing the brick thing and he's like, if you don't do this, you'll have to repeat eighth grade. Like he says yeah. that and his own daughter's there who just did. That was such a gut punch. And it was like such just, a, he thought he was being funny. And obviously yeah. not every joke lands. Man, that was that that was so heartbreaking for him for for everyone in the room obviously um for Eliza I, I I loved that scene it was again heartbreak I'm not trying to say my favorite scenes are always the sad ones but I really but I think that was just how you again because again remember everybody in this world there are people who are ghosts who wear sheets so you have so you've got this like this balance of this really fun light kind of fantastical world you know, juxtaposed against like reality of middle school and adulthood and mm-hmm. life. And it's just so good. Um, so let's talk about her. She wasn't in the first book, but he was. So how did you determine that he not only that he needed to come back, but that his daughter would be the focus? Like, when did you know he had a family? Right. Well, so, um, you know, I, I originally, when I was, when I was developing the plans for Delicates, I knew that I wanted to touch on suicide only slightly. Um, and it was, it was because when I was finishing sheets, I remember seeing in the news that there was a little boy who was maybe nine or 10 and he had died by suicide after being bullied. And I I was like, this is happening. Like you, people think that we can't talk about dark, dark subjects with kids and that they're not, they're not old enough to understand but, but they are dying from suicide. Like there's, it is still happening. We need to talk about it. And like, it's difficult to talk about. There's no right way to talk about it, but I think that is important to start the conversations and let them know that, like, let them know the reality and, and let them feel comfortable enough to express that they're suffering so that they have, like, they know they can talk to people about it. Um, and so I got, from the get-go, I knew that I wanted there to be a character struggling with bullying and eventually might have some suicide ideation. And I also knew that I wanted that to be a person of color because there are too many white suffering characters. Like we need to understand that um, like any, anyone, any race, any gender, like any, any person is suffering mental health issues. And I was like, well, you know, Mr. Duncan is a person of color and it would be really awesome if it was a relative of his, because he would have more presence in the story. And, um, in the first book, you actually see Mr. Duncan show up to the grocery store with two of his daughters. Those are Eliza's two sisters. Um, take up a lot of time. Yeah. Yes. They are very um, rambunctious, we'll say. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And I, I, the reason I didn't make the character suffering one of them is because they were too young. Like, and and I drew them as too young in book one. And so I I figured um, if there was one more older sister around Marjorie's age, um, and it, it worked out because Eliza is the kind of person who does her own thing. She wouldn't be going to the grocery store with the family. She would be off taking pictures. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, I, I invented this character to be, be the, the, uh, beacon of this idea of suffering. Um, and yeah, so it just allowed me to introduce Mr. Duncan more into the story and, 
uh, but yeah, that's really how it all began with Eliza. Well, and I, and I like her in, in the thing that the thing about her that what is such a brilliant thing that you do is not only is she a person of color, she's you you set her up as and then people can't see me air quoting other in several ways. So she's the teacher's kid. So that automatically is going to make her different from her classmates because they're like, they're going to be wary. Oh, you know, she's the teacher's kid. And what is that? What do we, you know, so you, you set her up that way. She's a person of color. She's been held back. Mm -hmm. She is a, an introvert, like painfully introverted. You know, some, some introverts don't mind um, being alone all the time, you know, and, and it's not a painful thing, but some people it is painful, especially in middle school, it's worse. You know, when you're an adult, you can be like, I'm an introvert. The lockdown has been good for me because I haven't had any pressure to go see humans. And that's great. <laughs> Other people are like, that's really hard. And in middle school, even if you do want to be alone all the time, that's hard to do because mm -hmm. people don't understand that. And then my favorite thing about her is that you have her actually develop real film. So you set her apart in so many different ways that it just makes you love her so much. You just want to give her a hug and you worry about her. And so like, as you were developing her character and doing all these things, you know, how, how did those little, um, just out of curiosity, how did those, those like character quirks or character traits, how, you know, obviously her being born and those are, that's, that's not a character trait, but like <laughs> being that she's so, you know, introverted and that she likes old timey stuff and yeah. that she's a ghost hunter. What about that? Like, where did that come from? And why was, why were those kind of things that set her apart so important? Story. Yeah. Um, so I wanted her to be like the exact opposite of Marjorie. I mean, from, oh, from nice. the um, beginning of she's like Marjorie is like, ghosts aren't real. I don't believe in any of this. She, she finds out about Wendell. She's like, this is crazy, but okay. And she's not really enthusiastic about it. I wanted Eliza to just be a diehard ghost fan. I wanted her to be this person who was like, who so desperately wants to see a ghost. While Marjorie, who doesn't care at one bit, suddenly has all these ghost friends yeah they all live in her house right? <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so um so yeah I really started from that I just pictured this girl uh walking around town like with this ghost hunting gear or like a, a fancy camera being like oh like I'm trying to find a ghost um and of course like when you're in middle school and you're obsessed with ghosts and think that you're going to see one what kid is going to think oh you know you're a normal person let's hang out um, yeah. right and so it just like this idea that she she has this really quirky and unbelievable interest is definitely going to make her the target for bullying. Yeah, yeah. And the film thing, um, you are you a, do you? I like films. I miss actual film. Film. I, I I'm sad that everything is digital. What is your? Um, well, I read I read your comic digitally, so I guess who am I to talk about that? I like digital comics because I can make them so bright. I can adjust the brightness, <laughs> and I enjoy that. But. Um, what, why did you, why film? Are you a camera person or did you have to look? Cause you like teach us how to develop film. Well done, by the way, <laughs> educational and, and emotionally, uh, emotionally and intellectually. So do you know all that stuff or did you have to learn all that? Oh no. I, so I actually contacted the uh, photography professor at the local college here. Oh, and she was kind enough to give me a tour of the dark room and show me how she actually like walked me through the entire process from beginning to end of developing film from the camera and making a print from it. Um, and then I also, um, I followed one of her students another day, uh, to watch him like actually develop one of his photos and take it to print. Um, so yeah, I, I had no experience whatsoever. I, I had just seen uh, dark room work in movies. 
like the secret life of Walter Mitty is my favorite movie sure. of all time. Okay. Um, and so I, I just love that feel of the dark room. And I also, I mean, the fact that it's very, like, it's dark, it's scary. It, there's this creepy red light. Like it's, it's not a comfortable place. And I wanted Eliza to find her home there. I wanted her to find this like home in a place where not many people are going to go, where it's really uncomfortable and dark and, and you feel alone. It just and felt it smells like, bad. All the chemicals. Yeah. 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 Sorry, <laughs> it just, just felt like home to her. Um, and of course you find out, um, later in the book, maybe I won't give this away, but you find out like who gave her the can her first camera. Oh, that's, and, that was great. I really and, um, and it just, it's like her, her story. Like this is something that was special for her. Like it made her feel like she had something to cling on to. And, um, and I just, I like, I like old things. I mean, I love this idea of nostalgia. And so I, I wanted to incorporate the dark room and I love introducing kids to new worlds. I mean, what kid has worked in a dark room or even been in a dark room? Like when, when they get to see these really awesome processes being done, I think it's almost like reading fantasy for them. It's like, what is this place? So cool. Like, <laughs> it, it, it's a really real thing, but, but they're not, to them, it's, it's completely make-believe. They're just not aware of this sort of thing. Um, so I love introducing really old things, which feel new to kids. It worked. I love it. And there's a um, book series. It's, uh, it's about a girl, a young girl, but it's, it's for adults. The Flavia Deleuze Mystery Series by Alan Bradley. And that Flavia is this 11-year-old genius chemist. And, and honestly, between that book and this, I could develop film now. Because it was funny to see, <laughs> like the book takes place in the 50s, but she has developed her own dark room in her science lab in her, in her part of the house. And so, it, and so for this, you know, in the 50s, this was like cutting edge technology that she's got her own camera in her own dark room and her own whatever. And so now to see the two bookended, like, because that's just a book book, like you read it. And, uh, you know, there's no pictures of it. So to see it done, and it was so cool. That's why I wondered how much you knew, because I assume Alan Bradley did all the same research you did and put it in. It's like you guys almost the exact same steps, the exact same process. It was like, <laughs> that's amazing. And, and you're right, you do, you learn so much, I think, um, unintentionally. And, and so you did all that work for something that was, it's obviously part of her personality, but it's not like, this isn't a book called How to Develop Pictures, but you know how, if you read this book, like you said, so I, I hope that that's true. I hope kids are like, what? There's film cameras, you know, cause you can still yeah. get them. So yeah. that's so cool. What a cool idea. So, so did you, while you were following them around did you develop any yourself or you just watch? I did, I mean, it's, oh my gosh, it is so intimidating. Like, I don't know if I could do it. it and also I'm, I'm such a perfectionist where it's like, if anything messes up, I freak out. And, if, and like, and de uh, developing film is, you know like the title says, a very delicate process. Yeah, yeah um and you make one mistake and everything goes wrong like you, you like you cannot get a picture in the end if you mess up your film if that happened to me I don't know if I'd be able to handle it <laughs> like losing all my photos that I'd taken yeah it's just so intimidating to me and I think that's also a really interesting thing is like Eliza's okay with this that the idea of loss she's like yeah. she's okay if she's okay taking risks um yeah, what I love about her, that is so well said because she's taking, this is the thing. So for again, for people who have not ever taken an actual photo of an actual camera and everything's on your phone, you can just hold up your phone and take like 50 of them. But film, you've only got 20 or 12 or 36, however many are on the roll. And most of the pictures 
that she does, 99.999% of them aren't anything, are failures. They're great pictures, like you can tell, like you drawing her pictures, you can tell they're well composed and they're really interesting, but she's trying to get ghosts. And so she constantly fails and it never lets her down. Yeah. What a great character trait is like, that would be so defeating, but it's not. She's like, I'll get them next time. Yeah. Cool idea. So, um, so like you said, I think that's such a cool juxtaposition to, she's doing something that's permanent. She's taking the time, it takes her an hour or plus to get this picture that could not end up bearing any fruit. Whereas if you just got your phone, you're like, oh, I missed it, delete. Yeah. What a cool way to show her perseverance. Was that intentional too? Is that why you needed her to do something that had such permanence? I definitely wanted her to be incredibly invested. I wanted to show that she's like, she's so obsessed with this, unique trait of hers like she knows who she is I really wanted to show that um she's not faltering for anybody like despite all these people completely tearing her down like she's not willing to change and I think that's an important thing like just because you're not willing for, to change people and just because people can't sway you it doesn't mean they're not hurting you and so I wanted her to be incredibly strong and because of that strength or in spite of it like she's still able to be hurt. Yeah, well, and that's just it. And I think that that's where the, and again, we don't want to get, and you've already touched on it, obviously, and it's important that we talk about it. There is a, it's, it's not like a suicide attempt like you would think. It's not like mm. no guns, she hasn't built a noose. It's just, there's a tall place in their town and that's kind of the, the you know, climax of the book takes place mm -hmm. there. And so I do, right, it's like through this whole um, book, you see her take a beating mentally, right? She's been mm -hmm. held back. Her dad makes an accidental joke at her remark. She's bullied. The only person who's nice to her is Wendell. Yeah. And she, like, he's gone missing again in her life. And that's Marjorie's fault because Marjorie doesn't want him out and around, but they click. They are like, she's got this friend in Wendell who could yeah. be a real friend to her, but of course they're kept apart. And so she just weathers the storm. And I think what is really important that you show us is that there's, there's these two uh, warring things within us all. There's the way that we handle adversity, but mentally, like you mentioned earlier, at some point in time, your mental health is equally important to your physical resilience. And so you've made her this bigger, stronger person because she's older, but she's the only one who can do the brick swim. Mm -hmm. She's yeah. this amazing talent, but, but she's still worn down. And I think that is so important to show people that, and same with Tessie, it seems like her life is awesome, but we get to see that her life kind of sucks too. Yeah. So this idea of this duplicity of middle school. Um, so what was, what, you know, why was that so important to you to show, you know, literally behind the curtain? Again, I keep using that phrase. I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean for that to be my thing. I said this episode. <laughs> um, so, what, you know, again, as you were writing it, this, du this duplicitous nature of, of these characters and some good, some bad, how, why was that important for you to include? I just want my stories to be very human. I want, I don't want to cover anything up. I want people to be aware that there are, there are many different sides of people. Um, I think that, especially now with social media, we see this idea of perfection. We see that, oh, your lives are so wonderful. Um, you, people only project what they want people to see. And I think that they're kind of, putting themselves in a difficult position because suddenly people don't think they have issues and they have to put on this 
this front they have to pretend like they're okay because that's how they advertise themselves and I think it's so important for us to realize that there are things going on that we're not aware of and for I mean I'm sure that bullies only see this one side of people and they think like why aren't you normal like your your life doesn't seem like it would be any reason for you to be such a problem person um and if we start realizing like the more we see characters with with backstories the behind the curtain stories we might start to learn that you know there that we need to see people for things that we don't see them as like we need to be able to read further into people I agree. No, I totally agree. Cause I think you're right. Is, is, is just like with Mr. Duncan, you created this character who is in the first book, who is so fun and vibrant and full of life and everybody's favorite teacher. And he's so great. But then, you know, in this one you see, Oh, but at home, things aren't always perfect. And mm-hmm. he's stressed out and he and his wife, well, they don't fight. It's not like they're, you know, it's not like they're throwing, it's not Highlander at home, but it's, it's not great. You know, like they, there's problems and, and, and Eliza's part of the problem which is how she sees it. They see her as a problem because they're worried about her. She mm-hmm. sees, when, when she overhears them talking, she feels like she's a problem, like she needs to go away. And again, it's, so even while they're in the home and they know what's up with her and they know she doesn't have a lot of friends and they know she's considered weird, even they can't do the right thing, which again, at the end, I don't want to give too much away, you know, there's a lovely moment with she and her mother, which I thought was really important and I appreciated that that was in there because again you're saying all you got to do sometimes is have a conversation with somebody Mm -hmm. yeah that's really I mean that's really the main thing I wanted to wanted to prove to people is that like we need we need to talk to people we need to be okay with being vulnerable and letting them know that we're struggling like the the idea that we're struggling doesn't make us weak I think that it's important to show people of any age, kids, adults, um, that expressing our emotions, even if they're bad emotions, is is so important. And I think that's the thing too. And Owen does that. I think what Owen's Owen has channeled or has bottled up all of his rage, and he skips Halloween. And the moment when he realizes what he did, and then he's mad, and Marjorie totally just like handles that with such grace. And that is the moment when you see the kind of woman Marjorie is going to be is in mm-hmm. that moment with Owen. I loved it. It was again, heartbreaking, but beautiful. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's not only just talking to people, but being willing to talk, being willing to say yes. what you're feeling. Yeah. And so I just thought that was, that was such a great moment. And, um, you know, again, he's seven and he just doesn't know what he's doing. Cause I'll be yeah. frank. There's a lot of times I read a lot of YA books. Um, Cause I just think I like character driven stories. Yes, and, and I don't too. think there's a lot of adult novels that are character driven, unfortunately, unless they're like you know, like the the ones where it's the same character, like you know uh, Stephanie Plum or something. You know, it's the same character over and over. Um, those are, but I feel like most adult books don't have character driven. So I read a lot of young adult books. But the one thing that drives me crazy in young adult books is when people deliberately keep secrets. Like they're like, I'm I'm not going to tell. What I like that you did is the things that people are keeping to themselves, it's not deliberate. It's that they're too young and they're too confused and they're too upset or they're too distracted in the case of, of Mr. Duncan and his wife 
to, to be able to say it. So you didn't like lean on the trope of, I'm just gonna keep a secret to keep a secret. I mean, obviously Marjorie yeah. keeping a secret about ghosts, that's totally different. But, so I just like that. I appreciated that. Cause I, I think that's such a worn out trope in YA lit is I'm not gonna tell you just cause, even though like, <laughs> I'm just being willfully ignorant as opposed to like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how to handle myself. Yeah. And I'm lashing out. So I appreciated the, the way that again, you, um, you know, sidestepped expectations and gave everybody something that was so true. And because um, that feels un unreal in a lot of YA books, don't you think? Where it's always like, oh, I know this thing, but I'm just not going to tell. Why? Why aren't you? I mean, fine, don't tell your parents. They're the villains of the story. But why aren't you telling your best friend? You said 150 pages, this person's your best friend. And now for no reason, you're not going to tell her? That's dumb. That just always drives me crazy. So, <laughs> so anyway, in this book, you don't do that. So the things that people keep from each other there are consequences for that and they don't realize that they're doing it. So I, I was just along, again, another long way for me to say, well done, ma'am. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you appreciating it. It's just good. It's really, I mean, really, truly. And I think that's what I wrote on my review was sheets is good, but I love delicate. Like this is just like a step up to me. Oh, oh yeah. As a story. It, if you'd only ever read, if, if sheets was the only thing that existed, you'd be like, man, that's excellent. I can't wait to see what she does next. And now that you've done delicate, it's like, well, damn, you are just, <laughs> you're just showing off now. So it's really important. Um, I hope that you, when COVID ends or even pre then, if you do more of these and, you know, get out there and talk to middle school kids and, and do that kind of thing, because um, they need to read this and they need to talk to you and hear from you mm -hmm. in my, oh. in my opinion. I mean, I, I would, I would love to do as many, that's the thing, like working, working from home. I mean, that's the, the pandemic has not changed my lifestyle that much because I, I work entirely from home all alone with, I mean, I have my cat, my cat when is, we met, what was your cat's name? Vinny after Vincent Vinny. Bingo. Vinny nice. Bingo. Um, he, uh, he, he's like been my saving grace during these times. Uh, he's all I ever see. Yeah. Um, but, but pre pre-pandemic, this is my life most of the time, just working alone at my, my tablet. Um, and so when I get to actually interact with the readers, it, it's so important to me because it, it just, it's so important to see how your audience reacts and you get to hear their favorite parts, what, what spoke to them. And of course that will influence your later work. Um, but it's also important for me to explain things that I can't necessarily upfront explain in a book. I can't be like, all right, this is why I'm including bullying and suicide. Yeah. <laughs> like side note, asterisk yeah. at the bottom. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I would, I love speaking with kids about the stories for sure. That's important that you do that too. And I hope, I hope they all get out there. So I've got to, I always end with, with the same question for everybody and we'll get to that one, but I do, I would be selfish. It's totally selfish. I mean, to say I need to know, uh, because you did seventh grade and now it's eighth grade. Are we gonna to get to grow up? Are we gonna to get to watch Marjorie and her friends grow up? And then we get to see Owen get his own stories. Are, are we gonna live, are we gonna spend more time with them, please? I, I cannot say yes, but I cannot say no. Okay. All the listeners and then of course you will have to wait to find out. Okay, I just, cause I love, I love that kind of idea like turning, um, 
you know, we can visit them once a year. We kind of dropping it like my my favorite film trilogy of all time. It's like the, the, on the nerd show. I'm supposed to say Star Wars, but it's the Before trilogy. Um, while the Star original Star Wars trilogy is very important to me, the Before trilogy with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Have you ever seen those? No. Okay, that's I'm fine. so sorry. No, it's totally fine. No, no, no. It's there, nothing happens in them. So what they did. <laughs> It's the first movie is called Before Sunrise and it's Ethan, a young Ethan Hawke and a young Julie Delpy and it takes place in, in um, Austria. And then eight years later, nine years later, they made a sequel where they played themselves, they played the characters and then they did a third one. Every nine years, they bring the same characters oh, back. And so you yeah. get to spend one day in the life with these characters every nine years. And okay, did, that's cool. It's amazing. Richard Linklater, it's called the Before Trilogy. I'm sure you can, if you're... It's something to do, you, the dialogue, especially in the second and third one, because they write their own dialogue in the second and third one. They write it themselves. Oh my God, it's great. And the second one is in real time. It's like an 85 minute movie where they just walk around. It's amazing. I love, I know it sounds really awful, but the reason I bring it up is that I love that kind of idea where drop back in. And while I like episodic comics and I read those, you know, I want the month to month, like, oh, what's going on? What's going on? You know, let's, you know, we, when we left, last Aquaman, oh shit, we got to see, you know, we got to get there. But like, I love the idea of dropping back in a year later or so. So, so I'm just, this is me wishing it upon you and knowing that there's a fan base to see them grow up. We would be there. I would be there. I would promote the hell out of it. So. Well, that's the thing though. Also, I mean, like, you know, Marjorie could keep going up and up and up and Wendell's just going to be a boy forever. And so like, that's, we need to see, that's going to be heartbreaking, but then that's where Owen can come in. I know, I know. But, but see, like, you know, with the day that this becomes a, a Netflix original series. Has <laughs> that happened yet? Have you, has I don't know. Oh, oh, no, but oh. I, I can only hope. Maybe, maybe one day. But, um, but that's the thing, there, there is so much room to explore, um, these relationships as they do progress in life like what would marjorie be like as an adult with this with like this young ghost boy as a, a friend it's just it's kind of like the peter pan thing like right yeah. wendy and young peter pan yeah i've got a tinkerbell right here oh look at that <laughs> peter pan's <laughs> is one of my top five favorite books of all time i love peter pan like i it's great because of that because of because there's so many real things that are happening in that too and i think that's hard to do i think it's hard to write you mentioned it earlier, and I think that's what you do. The reason I think I'd love to see them grow up is because the readers who pick this up when they're 11 or 12 will also want to see themselves at 15 or 16, and they can grow up, like you said, with Marjorie, and they can, because Wendell already, we already see a rift between them, between book one and book two, because Wendell's still 11. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not going to give anything away, but you just, everybody pay attention to who Wendell is. You tell us who Wendell is. And that was, again, beautiful and devastating. And thanks for doing that. Thanks for leaving the breadcrumbs that we see who Wendell was as a person. But I just love it. And so I just think people could watch watch, uh, watch themselves grow up with her. So. Oh, yeah. so that's my hope. And that was my question. But you can't say or you can't not say. And, and listen, I only know Tara over at Oni. So Tara, listen, you know people over there. Make this happen. Make, make more happen. <laughs> So my final question, the last question I always ask everybody before we have you promote yourself and talk about this and how people can follow you is, and it kind of, we've touched on it, but I always ask, who is this book for? Like, who do you, who would you recommend your own book to? You're not you. Of course, you're, you're, you're promoting your own book. You want everyone to read it. That's, that's the easy answer. But if you're me, 
if you're my wife, if you're my daughter, who's an elementary school teacher, if you're whomever, who are you handing this book to? Who would you recommend should read this book? I, I mean, this book is, even though it deals with um, Eliza, who is dealing with bullying and, and uh, like suicide, suicide, suicidal thoughts, um, it's mostly a, a book for people to learn how to speak to people who are dealing with that. So I think it's important that it get in the hands of anyone who is going through what Marjorie's going through. Like anyone who might be struggling with their place or or struggling with their friend groups. I mean, really just anyone who is struggling, which honestly could be any middle schooler. I, I think that um, it's also important that we start learning these things young, which is why this is targeted at a young audience. Like I, I want my books to all be written for people of all ages. Like I want it to be, I want there to be parts of my books that speak to everybody. Um, but the reason that I want them to be targeted to younger audiences is because it's important for us to start these lessons early and to learn how to speak with people and deal with people at an early age and know that we were able to express ourselves at an early age. So the first people I'm handing this book to are definitely the like the middle school crowd, the early middle school or like or going into middle school. I totally agree. I think that's who it should be. And I think, um, but I also think Parents, this is one of those books that, that I think every parent, regardless of how old your kids are, should read because the parents learn a lot of lessons in this. Marjorie's dad is mm-hmm. going through a lot. Mr. Duncan, who is like a hero, but he's also flawed, obviously the villain in the first piece. Um, and the adults are awful to her in this town. It, it, it's like, they're really terrible. So it's like, you kind of need to check yourself. Like, why are you talking to a 13 year old? I mean, why is no one in this town saying, there's a 13 year old running a business instead they're just awful to her. And she's very Cinderella, obviously in that first one, but it's like, man, um, I think adults should read this too because they need. Oh yeah. And that's the thing. Like it's important for um, you to have conversations with your kids about the books they're reading. Like I'm I'm sure there are going to be parents who are wary of giving their young child a book that deals with suicide. Um, And that's okay. But like, I think it's important for, uh, them to still read it and, and you be there to speak with them about it. Like be the person who you can be like, all right, you know, read this book, but then talk to me about it. Um, so that you can, you can tell them your own thoughts and you can, you can learn from each other and like have the conversation. I mean, this is a, this is a good conversation starter between oh, adults and kids. 100%. And I think that that, and again, that's, that's why this needs to be like on shelves, you know, in middle schools, um, you know, they have like classroom libraries, just stuff that's kind of sitting back there. I think this, these books will just need to sit on shelves in, in, you know, upper L and middle school classrooms so kids can just go and just grab them and they don't have to make a big deal out of it. You know, like one of those free lending libraries that, that mm-hmm. classrooms have. Everybody, it's so good. And I appreciate that you did it. And it's lovely and it's heartfelt and it's funny. And you managed to just capture that all. And that is such a, a skill. And it was my honor to get to meet you because um, I just, I think you're insanely talented and I, 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 I was just excited when I got it. And um, thanks for saying yes to this. Oh, yes. Oh, thank you so much. I, I, like I said, I love any kind of opportunity to actually speak to people about my work other than my cat. 
And, and he probably loves it. He's, like, hey. he's a really wonderful listener, but he doesn't I really bet have he is. to say <laughs> in return. Um, but so, yeah, this was, this was so wonderful to be able to meet you and speak with you about my books. Thank you. And you're the only person I know who've re- who's read Delicates. <laughs> so it's not out yet. So uh, I haven't gotten to talk to you, but I've been telling my wife about it. She hasn't, she hasn't got it from that girl yet. So it's like, she's a librarian, so she could get it too. But it's just, you know, you know, I don't know if you ever get on neck alley, but that's like my favorite drug besides coffee. You just get like free advanced reader copies of books and comics. So it's a, it's a, I get stuck in there. <laughs> so, oh, right. But you know, I, uh, so this is exciting. So thank you. Let's tell everybody, um, how they can find you, promote your stuff. Obviously, so this will come out on the, I keep meaning to look at my calendar. I'm looking down at, I've, I've taken screenshots because I've got a digital copy. So I've taken screenshots. Oh, okay. yeah. So I keep like looking down. I'm like, oh God, there's some, the, the one when there's the panel. And again, this is not, this is just me. The one, I don't, it's not coming through. Right when her foot is hovering just above the pool, Marjorie's oh, foot, yeah. piano with no words. It's like, God, that's lovely. That says so much about her, her trepidation and her trying to literally take the plunge. And there's just so many great things like that. So anyway, so this show will come out on the 19th and this book comes out on the 23rd. Is that correct? Yes. It'll be um, available from bookstores on the 23rd and then comic shops on the 24th. Okay. So Hmm. this will come out that Friday before. So you are listening to this people and you should be pre-ordering this. And in just a few days from now, you'll be picking up your copy of this. So, so I will link to Goodreads because Goodreads then allows you to buy it from whatever bookstore you want. That's, that's uh-huh. what I use. I love Goodreads. So besides that, where can people find you and how should people follow you and learn about all your awesomeness? Yeah, so um, most of my information that I throw at people comes on my Instagram and I'm just um, at Brenna Thumbler on Instagram. Um, and of course I have a website, brennathumbler.com, but I, uh, Instagram stories, you know, I'll, I'll throw up a lot of, um, upcoming, upcoming news and cool things I'm working on related to the book. So it's really awesome to, um, follow me on there because you can get some insider information on what's to come. Uh, and then of course I'll always keep you up to date on the release days or any events that I'm doing related to the books. Um, yeah, so definitely follow me over there on Instagram and I'm also on Twitter and I don't really use it as much at Brenna Thelmar. Um, but I, you know, I also share a lot of things on there. Like if someone tweets a, a review or information about my book, I usually get that a retweet so you can find out information there. And, and I yeah. will link to all of that. And I, I'm on Twitter. So that's where I, I tweeted out that you were coming on and I got a lot of people were excited. People I'd never oh. knew who knew who I was because I tagged you in the thing that was like, I'm so excited to get to talk to you soon. Lots of retweets. So you've got lots of fans on Twitter too. Oh, awesome. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely follow yeah, me on. Yeah. I will, yeah. I'll put a link to your website and to your Instagram, which sounds like the place to go for all yeah. the goodies. And then Twitter. Yeah. And obviously I'll link to your Goodreads for Delicates. And so people can just click on there. And the cool thing about Goodreads is it's like Sheets 1 and Sheets 2. So if you get to Delicates, you can click on Sheets and then you can just buy them all right there. Um, Goodreads is the best. It's the best place to have a portable brain unit so you know what books you're reading. Um, <laughs> follow me on Twitter. I'm at Tricycle Boombox, or you can go to my website, AR Farina, where you can get links to this show, everything else in Comics in Motion, um, some short stories I've published. I have an essay coming up in a Judge Dredd, um, critical analysis of Judge Dredd. Hopefully that will be linked there soon. Fingers crossed. Now the time this comes out, that should be out. So that's exciting. So you can follow me there. And I can't thank Brenna enough 